Hey, welcome to the Soma Podcast. My name is Rob. And I'm Zach. And we are just two dudes exploring all things diversity in theology and culture. Zach, how are you today? I'm good. The sun's out. It's like nice weather. Winter seems to be over. It's, I don't know, I think it's like in the 50s today. But, you know, that's really great for Chicago in March, I think. I, I don't think the winter's ever over. <laughs> I don't know, dude. It creeps up every it, month somehow. Yeah, but like very briefly, we we were spoiled this year. We have to be honest. We had a really nice winter. I think we only got eight inches of snow for like the whole, I don't know, six months of the season. But I'd, I'd confirm that. <laughs> you confirm? You yeah. were also there? Yeah, I was there. Perfect. I was in Chicago. Two witnesses? Yeah. It happened. Yep. Perfect. Hey, Zach, what are we talking about today? We are talking about... Uh, women's role in ministry, and with that, maybe even men's, maybe maybe yeah. the role of men and women in the church. Well, sure. So uh, we could we could say it that way: the role of men and women in the church. However, the role of men in the church has never really been under scrutiny in church history. True, it's never been controversial. It's no. just been assumed. Yes. Uh, however, women's roles, uh, specifically uh, what we would call higher ministry roles. Uh, in the church of thinking of things like pastorship, it's far less common to see a female pastor. And there are theological reasons for that a lot of the time. Correct. I agree 100%. And I think a lot of times uh, it just assumes that women have their roles of not being in a higher leadership. And that's just what we do. Yeah. A lot of people that's just like, oh, well, that, I mean, my church has a male pastor. I never even thought about a lady pastor. So, for me, uh, growing up, um, I think my experiences were were very uh, complementarian. Which, to to explain that, is pretty much the theological perspective that it's all male leadership. So women are not allowed in in leadership. Would you say that or? Uh, it's it, it, the interesting thing about it is women are always the like Sunday school teachers. Mm. So, so they have specific roles for them. Not, it's not so much that like they're forbidden. It's just that oh, we have just the job for you. Right. I, I think in the complementarian circles, the majority of women are either Sunday school teachers or mm. in some way affiliated with teaching other women. Gotcha. Um, so this was my norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I was used to, and um, that's kind of what I carried with me. Uh, into my undergraduate work. And as I was there, um, I mean, I continue to affirm that that is exactly what the Bible says. Sure. Because um, the Bible clearly says in 2 Timothy 2, 18, 8 through 15, uh, you know, Paul is telling Timothy that I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Um, stuff like that was like, boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it seems like a pretty clear passage. Yeah. Especially in English. <laughs> Especially in the English standard. Which is the original version. language. Right. <laughs> right. English is the original That's language. That's not true. It was written in Greek. Anyway. Um, and then you also have passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 14, which says, mm-hmm. women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. Uh, they must be in submission, uh, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women to speak in the church. So it's pretty clear to me as I read this, right? But I hear this phrase often, 
the scripture is clear about, the scripture mm. is clear about, and then someone points at a verse and mm. defends their argument. My issue with that of late has become proof texting, proof texting versus a constructive understanding of the passage theologically. And mm. what I mean by that is instead of giving me a verse to defend your point, explain to me in the context of Scripture what specifically is being addressed mm. constructively, and then how can we then take that and interpret that? So, like, what's under the surface? Right. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, when you and I have conversations, like, someone else overhearing us on the train could think that we're talking about one thing, but if they have the full context of who we are, where we live, um, what we're talking, not only just the words we're saying, but what we're talking about. Correct. It could completely change the meaning of totally. the words. Absolutely. And I think it's important, too, to read Scripture in its even cultural mm. context of the time. Yeah. And at that time, we know that these things were true of women and mm. these things were true of men back then. Yeah. That's no longer the case. Interesting. And so... I think we our our theologies need to be refined mm. and that we need to take this in the context but also apply it to our current state. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting background. My background is actually the opposite. Uh I grew up in a church where my pastor uh was a man and his wife was my other pastor. Um and so we would refer to them as pastor uh, we'll just say John and Pastor Jane, and they were just uh, they they both had the same role essentially. You know, one was a senior pastor, and the other was sort of like his assistant, if you will. But she would preach on Sundays, and nobody even considered that like these uh, passages that you brought up were referring to that. It was just not even a part of the discussion. It was just like, well. She's more qualified to preach than I am, so I'm going to listen to her. And uh, so it was, it was just never even really a compartment for me until um, I left home and moved to Chicago and started going to Bible school where complementarianism is the narrative that, uh, or at least the, the framework that we were working in um, in that school. Sure. And so you're... you're the, your upbringing is more so the what, what's called the egalitarian yes. upbringing, which is you know there's yeah. no no distinction, no distinction. Men and women are equal. They're being used by God mm -hmm. because we're made in the image of God, male and female. He created them, um, and mine is more authoritative, mm -hmm. hierarchical. But so I'm interested, Rob. Uh, you seem to have pivoted recently in your stance. You you said that you grew up in this complementarian context, uh, complementarian context rather. Um, and this is, this is something that you championed, is it not? Right. And so the big change for me was I went to the text that was being used mm -hmm. and that was a, a lot of times first Timothy two. Yeah. And as I'm reading this over and over and over again, I'm not trying to just pick these verses to defend a point. I'm trying to understand the context. Yeah. And so as we read in verse eight of first Timothy two, it says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's stop right there. Okay. If we're going to be consistent with the scripture, then in those churches that don't allow women to speak and whatnot, but a woman needs to learn quietly and all submissiveness, those men need to be praying 
lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Just like touchdown. Yes. Like <laughs> touchdown yeah. pose all the time. Exactly. <laughs> touchdown. <laughs> uh, that needs to happen. That would be exhausting. It would be exhausting. Yeah. But that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Sure. All right. I don't see why that's not as m- the same type of condition as the other. Sure. We move on to verse 9. It says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Are you mm. telling me that the women that attend these churches where they are not allowed to express authority over a man are also then dressing modestly? Yeah, you can't they wear ha- earrings. or You can't wear <laughs> earrings or they're not braiding their hair. Your gold so cross you have to leave at home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that is richness, you know? Um, but the point that I, I, I'm trying to make is, as I'm reading this, I see an inconsistency mm. of people on the complementarian spectrum, yeah. uh, the inconsistency of understanding this passage. And that is mm. that they pick apart the only verses that they need to defend their point instead of looking at it holistically. And they're not mm. practicing these things that Paul's telling Timothy. I think that's fair. I think that... Um the pushback that I would typically hear from complementarians is that uh, if Paul is making a universal command for women here and we are just to ignore that, what is our view of Scripture? Um, are are we then saying that our cultural ideals trump what Scripture says about uh, you know different gender roles and whether or not women are qualified in their nature to fulfill these roles um so i think that there's a hesitancy there and there's like a more uh like the approach is more erring on the side of like interpreting the text as literally as possible because nobody wants to be the one to say something like well you know our culture trumps the bible it's literally those that i talk to uh that interpret scripture literally Mm -hmm. that hold to this perspective yeah. of complementarianism. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of speaking on my old behalf where I read mm-hmm. scripture literally word for word Genesis through Revelation. Yeah. And that's kind of the assumption that you make. Yeah. Because literally it says that women should learn quietly and literally it says men should pray with uh, lifting holy hands. Sure. But I do agree we don't want to adapt to the culture mm-hmm. and allow the culture to interpret the way that we read the Bible. Yeah. But we need to read the Bible in its consistency. Which the egalitarian position is not saying that because since the 1960s feminist movement came to be and women are now in the workplace and we're progressives in our culture, it's not saying for these reasons we need to reinterpret the Bible. Right. It's just we dug a little bit deeper and we saw that the truth of what was going on there is actually quite different. Right, because the interpretation needs to be set in its context. Yes. And this is what's cool. Uh, We were able to... Uh, figure out a little bit more about these passages in their mm-hmm. context and um, another way to approach them in its holistic sense. Yeah, actually, uh, last week, we were actually able to sit down and interview a uh, an, an expert in the subject, actually, uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight. He's uh, written, I think, multiple books on the subject. Most notably would be a book called The Blue Parakeet, if you haven't read it. I highly recommend that book. Um, It just kind of gave me a whole new perspective on why I believe the things that I believe. 
That's true. Blue Parakeet is definitely a great book. Um, Scott McKnight wrote it, and you know it, it it helps with scriptural interpretation. And then it, at at the end of his book, he addresses uh, roles of women in ministry, and he uh, approaches it hermeneutically, tackling some of these difficult problem mm. passages. Yeah. And so, as when he joined us on our show last week, um, he was able to delve into these passages and explain to us why Paul was writing certain things the way he was in its context. Yeah. And so what we're going to do here is we're actually going to uh, we're going to take a break from from this portion of the podcast and we're actually going to just play for uh, you guys our audience um, some different excerpts from that interview so that you can see some of the things that uh, that he was talking about and you can hear it straight from him. So without further ado, here's Scott McKnight. Thank you for being on with us, Dr. McKnight. Um, the first question I have for you is, how would you define higher ministry roles in the church? Okay, uh, this is an expression I am not used to, and I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone use the idea of higher ministries. So uh, it's a bit of a contradiction in term, isn't it? To serve and to be higher serving is to, uh, is to deny what service is. But uh, let's say that in the history of the church, that the primary restriction has been at levels where people vest what they think is the most significant thing that happens in the church. So in the Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, now I'm not as aware of the Orthodox Church as I am of the Catholic Church, a female preaching is nowhere near the threat that a woman dispensing the Eucharist and blessing the bread and the wine would be. So let's say the higher ministry in the Catholic Church is Eucharist. In the Anglican Church, of which I'm a part, the same is true, and I'm assuming of the Orthodox. Whereas in the uh, Protestant Reformation, the Eucharist was diminished its centrality, and the Word of God preached, uh, in a sense, gained in its strength. Now, I know that uh, Calvinists the Reformed and Lutherans believe very much in the Eucharist, but the Word of God clearly took on greater significance as in preaching, so that over time, uh, those most influenced, let's say, by the Reformed tradition, have been the least convinced that women should preach. So we have two primary traditions here, one that values the preached word, the other one that preaches uh, that values the Eucharist, and women have been classically restricted from doing those two things because they're seen as more central to what the church offers. So what would you say uh, to the typical complementarian position when they take uh, verses like First uh, Timothy chapter 2, Starting in verse 11, it uh, says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So I guess the question is, how would you respond if someone were to use a verse like that as their defense? Well, they do use this one as their defense. Wayne Grudem is, uh, was a colleague of mine. He occasionally brought this text up to me because he knew what I believe. I think that it, it's very important to to understand the context in which we have to read verses like this. Okay, let's just say, first of all, there is a social and historical context. Paul is writing this to a situation in Ephesus. 
And we have learned very good and solid information on the behavior of women in Ephesus at the time when there was a movement in the Roman Empire that Bruce Winter, a historian in England, calls the New Roman Women. And what we have learned is that this was sort of an avant-garde, aggressive, uh, radical feminist movement in which women were uh, violating modesty with respect to clothing and were aggressive in assuming and taking over public platforms for speaking. So we know that this is reasonably the case, and we have, we have a text sometimes called the Anthea and Habricomes, depending on which text you get of it, where we, we, dis, we, are, we have a description of a woman in the, in the temple of Artemis who is dressed provocatively in order to attract men. And it leads on to a beautiful story of her relationship with Habricomes. But the point is that right there in Ephesus at this time, there is a description of how women were behaving in public worship uh, events that are the sort of thing the Apostle Paul is talking about. So the first is the social context. The second we have to consider is the, uh, let's just say, the canonical context, where over and over, not all the time, but over and over, we have stories about women who conducted themselves in teaching and preaching in most effective ways, obviously prompted by God, because some of them are prophets. We think of of Deborah, who was everything to Israel, judge, uh, king, spiritual leader, etc., and military leader. We think of Huldah, who is a powerful prophet at the time of Jeremiah, who is consulted by Josiah at a most critical moment that many people would say, in a sense, saved in faith uh, in texts like Deuteronomy. So we have those women, we have Mary, we have Junia, we have Priscilla, we have Phoebe, we have Yodia and Syntyche. So we have all these women in the Bible who have conducted themselves honorably and in a holy manner and in a loving way and have been gifted by God to lead, to teach, to explain, and to utter words of prophecy. So that context has to be factored in. And I think the text that is almost always ignored, and uh, I want to bring this up, is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 11 and following. Because in this very text, this is what Paul says about younger women who would like to be on the widowed list, which would give them financial freedom to do whatever they wanted. As for younger women, Paul, widows, do not put them on the list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ— they want to marry. Notice that expression. They want to get married. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge, which would be to celibacy. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children. Notice that expression to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some, in fact, have already turned away to follow Satan. In light of that context, then, uh, Rob and Zach, I want to suggest that when Paul is talking in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about women being silent, 
that he is referring to a narrow group of people, that he would never ban Miriam and Huldah or Phoebe from teaching because that's what they did. Instead, he is banning untrained younger widows who are clueless on what they have to talk about and who are morally not the example that needs to be done to be speaking and teaching in the church while they learn. Listen to what he says. Now, let's back up first, though. Notice the parallel in First Timothy and 10 with the sort of problems we see with women in First Timothy 5 and in texts that we have learned about Ephesus and the new Roman woman. I want the men, okay, verse 9, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, uh, adorning them not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. That's exactly the language that is used of the, of the young woman in the temple of Artemis, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So here Paul is against the sexual seductiveness of the new Roman women, and he doesn't want that making an impact on the church at Ephesus. This has a parallel clearly with the uh, women, the young widows in Ephesus giving up their first pledge and uh, wanting to, to get married. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. It doesn't say that they should be quiet. It doesn't say that they need to be silenced. It means learn. As they learn, they are to take a position of submission as they learn and become educated. I do not, and I would say this, I do not permit such a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. There's that word quietness again. Why? Because she doesn't have anything to say that is profitable for the church. Then Paul says something very peculiar. Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's not exactly a powerful argument to say that men were born first or were created first, uh, and, and he not only doesn't use the word created as the normal word, he uses plasso, which could mean formed in the sense of education. And, and why does he say this? Because at Ephesus, in the Artemis cult, there was a belief in the superiority of women to men. And Adam was not the one deceived, and it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Paul is turning the argument of the Ephesians on the head of the Artemis cult, where women were seen as superior, men as inferior, men as duped, women as the enlightened. And Paul goes back to the Bible and says, you want to believe in the Bible? Well, it was Adam who was formed first, and it wasn't Adam who was deceived. And then a very strange expression, but women will be saved through childbearing. And this is the idea that celibacy, even abortions were taking place in Ephesus, celibacy was the pure way at Ephesus for women. They, the Artemis cult was surrounded by castrated males. So women would be saved through childbearing, and that is, it's completely permissible to get married and have children, and you can be redeemed as people like that. You don't have to pursue the path of celibacy. So I think on this text, it is the height of disrespect to historical context to read this text as a blanket prohibition of female teachers in the church when we know women taught in the Bible, when we know more about the ecclesial context at Ephesus and the social context of the new Roman women, and when we know what's going on in 1 Timothy 5, it appears that Paul is prohibiting younger widows from assuming authority in the churches on the basis of their aggressive policies or aggressive procedures and approaches to life. And Paul is saying, no, they have to learn like everyone else 
a proper understanding of the gospel and theology, and only then will they be permitted to teach. Regarding uh, elders in 1 Timothy 3, what do you make of that passage, uh, whether or not women or uh, women could participate in uh, the role of an elder or a deacon? What's your take on that? I mean, I think that I think that the context of 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's one of those where it seems pretty clear that Paul is, is addressing men. And I, and I think that's right. I, I don't think Paul is addressing anything other than males in 1 Timothy 3 when he talks about the overseer, which, which is the Greek word episkopos, and for many people that's equivalent to an elder, but it's, it's not as simple as that. At any rate, it is clear that when he says faithful to his wife, which probably means not a polygamist, it, it probably means he's talking to men. He assumes in verses 2 through 7, in talking to elders or in, in talking to bishops, that he's talking to male. It's fair. In verses 8 through 10, it is also clear that he's talking about males. All right? And, and this is a, a common text uh, used uh, for males only being, uh, for deacons only being males. It is also a part of, of other texts like this. 1 Timothy 3.11, then turns to women. So clearly he is talking to males. And then in verse 12, he goes back to deacon, a masculine noun, must be faithful to his wife. So the deacon here is a male. All right, now here is the critical logical factor that for me is very important. Paul never explicitly says only males can be elders and deacons. He doesn't say that in so many terms. Instead, he assumes in this text that they are male. Fair enough. But we know from Romans chapter 16, 1, that Phoebe was a deacon. We know that she's not a deaconess as someone who cleans up communion cups in a Baptist church would be called. She's a deacon, which means she served in the church. So I would say this. Yes, it is true that Paul assumes uh, that the people he's addressing who are bishops or elders, overseers, and deacons are males. And he assumes that the deacon is a male, but he also knows that women can be deacons too. That's my case. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> And there you have it. That was Dr. Scott McKnight, uh, New Testament scholar. And those are some of the helpful insights that he provided for us with some of these problem passages in Scripture that mm -hmm. we struggle with. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was our podcast for this week on uh, egalitarianism, complementarianism, and the role of men and women in ministry. And so if you haven't already, feel free to follow us on Twitter, at Soma Podcast. I believe we also have an Instagram now. We are launching an Instagram page. It's at Soma Podcast also. Um, go ahead and follow us. We'll update you with a lot of content. And as always, if you have any topics that you would like us to discuss or perhaps even reach out to someone who is kind of an expert within that topic, let us know. Tweet us. Yep. You can direct message us. You can tweet us. You can send us contact information. Mm -hmm. Uh, at our email address as well. Zach, what is that? That is podcastsoma at gmail.com. That would be great. Okay. 
And as always, everything that we do here at the Soma Podcast is in collaboration with the Stained Glass Collective. So feel free to head over to stainedglasscollective.com. Check out some of the other podcasts we have there. Check out some blogs and just enjoy yourself. And as always, thank you for joining us on the Soma Podcast. Have a good day.